0: Hey everybody, I'm Mark D, and, uh, hey man, you got an intro plan for this? Uh, no. No, actually, I don't. It'd be a lot cooler if you did. And that intro was sent in by... Let me tell you what Melbourne is packing on Twitter. You may think that name is too long for Twitter, and you may be right. Hi, I'm Mark, and uh, I'm Garbage at Movies. Yet in the face of adversity, I persevere. This is the 1993 Richard Linklater film, Dazed and Confused, starring a metric fuckton of people and actually being a really, really great spiritual successor to my favorite movie, American Graffiti, in so many ways. This country is founded by people who were in the aliens, man. George Washington, man, he was in a cult, and the cult was in the aliens, man. You didn't know that? No. Oh, man, they were way into that type of stuff, man. Ow! Benny! You're, you're getting air from there, man. It's no good. It was the last day of school. Uh, Miss Crawford. I was thinking that maybe you and I can get together over the summer. I mean, it'll be legal. I mean, can make It was the first day of summer vacation. You guys know anything about a party here tonight? No, sir. Oh, it was a time they will never forget. There's a new Fiesta in the making as we speak. I thought he was cute. Oh, that's thought he was cute? Then. Do you realize when he graduated, we were like three years old? If only they could remember it. Okay. So you're not gonna go to law school? What do you want to do then? I want to dance. You gonna be quarterback next year? I oh, don't know, I might not even play. You're in need of a serious attitude adjustment, young man. Super dominant male in a 50s greaser uniform. That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs> the 50s were boring. The 60s rock. The 70s, oh, my God, they obviously suck. Dazed and confused, See it with a bud. Behind every good man, there's a woman. And that woman was Martha Washington, man. And every day George would come home, she'd have a big fat bull waiting for him, man. When he'd come in the door, man, she was a hip, a hip, hip lady, man. So we roll the trailer, and then we're here. By the numbers, Days of Confused may not seem like much. It was released nationwide september twenty fourth, nineteen ninety three, and went on to do just under eight million in the box office, which it isn't wonderful when compared to its just under seven million budget. It didn't get a video release until nineteen ninety eight according to a website, which is shocking. I believe that I, I first saw Jason Confused on TV, perhaps a premium channel. And then went out and and bought a DVD for it, uh, because that was the hot shit at the time. I don't don't think I had this on VHS. Eventually, I upgraded to the Blu-ray, and and just just do yourself a favor and go for it. I think it looks pretty good, but I'm not too much of a pixel peeper myself. I I know that there are many transfers that are legitimately bad, but for anything less than awful, I I may not notice without having a strong reference or side-by-side comparison to go off of. It's definitely gained traction since its release, and it holds a 92% on the Tomato Meter and a 7.6% on IMDb. It's got a 90% for the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, and um, usually when that's the case, it's because a movie is very dense or impressionistic or abstract and just generally less accessible. But. For this movie, which I think this movie is very accessible, I think that people are just stupid. To further my uh, cult status point through all of this, though, Linklater has been quoted as saying that "Dazed and Confused" made thirty million in the home video market. My long-term hot take, right out of the gate, is that anytime you want to search for more American graffiti. The, the name of the actual sequel of American Graffiti, which was two episodes ago, uh, it, it should just instantly redirect you to Dazed and Confused. Dazed adds a significant number of characters to the same style of intersecting concurrent narratives with, with a deftness and depth that makes my my dumb brain feel like high school, if that makes sense. There are groups that intersect with more with others than some there are, are connections that are stronger than others but but even the weaker ones are still represented and this isn't a movie about departure like american graffiti was but it is definitely a movie about change and and i think very specifically about identity versus american graffiti's focus on socio-cultural transition. It's a broad sampling of young people of differing age, class, and standing hurtling towards finding themselves instead of being faced with the irony of irrevocable and irreconcilable cultural change just over their horizon. It's May 28th, the last day of school in Austin, Texas in the year 1976, and I don't know that it's specifically Austin, Texas, but it is filmed in Austin, Texas. Anyway, uh, there is no impending Vietnam. No references to a soon-to-be-assassinated president. An intense civil rights movement will not follow in the next few years after the conclusion of this film. These kids will be young adults in the decadent 80s. Which ones will be artists, tradespeople, or turn into uptight, yuppie stock traders? It could be any of them. It could be any of them, really. But we get to learn more about them and we start with the youngest group who are heading into high school see what i mean a lot of variety here underlaying all of this adolescent melodrama and, and i mean that not as an insult but i'm not quite certain what to call it i know melodrama has a negative connotation but looking at the definition on wikipedia it seems like it it could fit still seems like i'm trying to burn this movie but i, I promise you that i'm not i like it very very much So, underlaying this melodrama is a complete collection of, of 70s rock that has mostly stood the test of time and has at least one song for everyone. Austin in 1993 seemed to still hold the charm of Austin in 1976, and indeed to this day is still pretty charming but unreasonably expensive to live in. To be fair, that can be said about just about everywhere at the time of this recording. I need to make some diagrams to really explain how these characters relate to each other and how they are stationed socially and how they change over the movie. I don't know if I'll have time to do that, but I would, I, th- that would be my ideal. So check the show notes, scumbags.com, S-E-U-M-M-B-A-G-S. It's actually a very lovely and fluid operation, like watching a lava lamp kind of move its globules of, of oil around. And there are are parts that are immovable and unchangeable, and that's that's fully on purpose, even if it was found by accident. And and some of those most delightful parts of watching this movie are also some of the saddest parts that you might find in reality. Two huge comparisons from Mark's movie, the the, the Marx movies podcast catalog are American Graffiti, which I've already I've already made in this podcast and will likely continue to make, and Friday Night Lights. It's obvious that they all deal with adolescence going through life, and that to varying degrees um, they romanticize or de-romanticize aspects of the experience. While American Graffiti is generally an ironically smiling jaunt through the transition from high schooler to adult in 1962's California and Friday Night Lights is a portrait of a 1988 small town Texas's diseased relationship with high school football. Jason confused, just is. In this night, these kids grow and changes people, but it's it's just a night. It's just the last day of school. No no real world stakes except looking forward to summer and then to the next school year. I believe that all the seniors are the upcoming senior class so they don't even count in my mind but I didn't grow up in small town USA so so for me this was a peek at how it's done in other places Friday night lights wore its darkness a little more obviously and while the other uh, while the underdogs don't win in the movie they win next year Dazed doesn't have an underdog it doesn't even have a game Yes, yeah, there's sports. Uh pink, I, b- I believe he says uh if I ever say that these were the best years of my life, remind me to kill myself or or something to that effect. It is Friday night lights but without the next season, without the desire for or the optimism of being successful within the system. I remember high school sports being a huge thing and and seeing the people who were clearly going into the systems of their respective discipline after high school or going to college on a sports scholarship, I think that it it is so prevalent, maybe particularly in the, the culture of the movie, but also the culture that I grew up in. And I think it, it's it's about the mythology of the journey and how many other people never got to experience that, so they live vicariously through the athletes. And I think it's a great, I think this is a great place to dip into the characters. And I think most specifically, Jason London's Randall Pink Floyd. If you think that Jason London was in Mallrats, you would be incorrect. That was Jeremy London, who is Jason's twin. And in my head, I had either of them confused for Jonathan Landis in Sequest 2032, but that's neither here nor there. Jason London, was in a a bunch of stuff, and I'm sure I'll get to some of those at some point, but his his portrayal of Pink, and to be clear, his name is Randall Floyd, but they call him Pink Floyd because of the band Pink Floyd. They had released The Dark Side of the Moon and Wish You Were Here in uh, 1973 and 1975, respectively, which are two of my favorite albums of theirs, and then they were just about to release Animals in 1977, which is my other favorite album of theirs. So I think it would be fair to say that they, they were a movement at the time. I'm also very clearly a, a Gilmore fan. Anyway, his portrayal of Pink is this wonderful riding of the line between being a full on starting senior quarterback jock and being an affable pothead. Who is just brimming with charm. He's not perfect though, but, but that's fine. Pink is trying to find himself in a lot of ways. And we're going deep into to spoiler country, by the way. Just just know that going in. I don't know that, that spoilers would ruin this movie, but they might. I think that I could have a broad understanding of what happens in this movie and still enjoy watching it for the first time. Because the plot is somewhat incidental to what the movie is. But I'll also be trying to talk about what the movie is, so your mileage may vary. So Pink is very charming and handsome. He's just a young man who's a, a bit of a heartthrob at school, and by all accounts, you know he's he's got a girlfriend. She's actually played by the well-known Joey Lauren Adams, who goes on to star in Mallrats with twin Jeremy London, and then really put a dent in in the culture that I grew up in with uh, the titular character in Kevin Smith's Chasing Amy. And I would love to do a Kevin Smith uh, year on this podcast, but I won't. There are innumerable other people, including Smith himself, who just have done it better. Anyway, Pink's got a good life. He's friendly with everyone, cute girlfriend, football quarterback, and likely captain, which is kind of like the social center of the team. But he doesn't like his girlfriend. I think they share only a handful of scenes at best throughout the entire movie. And she's actually a sweet person. She's actually nice. But he's having a crisis of identity. He's kind of actually under the mask, right? They talk about Bruce Wayne or Batman being the mask, and I did as well in the Batman Mask of the Phantasm episode. And and Pink's whole thing is that he's been masking as Bruce Wayne this whole time. And he's actually a, a bit of a stoner who just likes to hang out and shoot the shit and be cool when his football coach gives him an ultimatum. He ultimately says, fuck your ultimatum. And I respect that. There's a lot of discussion that goes into that uh, the, that analysis, right? The overt control that the football coach and the team is trying to exert uh, on the children who are the players versus uh, the seeking of pleasurable experiences, which is in many ways a huge part of, of being human and growing up. Signing this would condemn his soul to this... Uh, Dark Souls-like in-between lands of being unhappy, but being part of the the social machine of his town. Not signing it means he may not play football next year. Definitely a huge part of growing up and becoming a person. And he chooses uh, his independence, which I commend the character for. And he chooses it on a moral ground that he's not going to sign something and then break it. He's not going to lie about it. So I I commend the character for that, but then he goes off with Wooderson to buy Aerosmith tickets, and that is just a fucking terrible life choice. But I personally really don't like Aerosmith, and that is, um... It's just a journey, because I did like Aerosmith a lot when I was a kid, but then perhaps I played Revolution X on Super Nintendo too much. Who knows? Maybe I just started thinking a little more. Either way, the music I, I tend... I tend to say to the end, but but Pink really is somewhat of a philosopher king leader, almost. He's out there being nice and thinking about things and people, and he comes to his decision over much deliberation. No one else can live his life for him, and it would be unfair to ask them to do so. London takes to the task like a natural, and maybe that's just him being himself, but it works. His actual love interest is Jody, who is played by Michelle Burke, who will come up in a future episode pretty soon. I thought that she was just great when I first saw the movie, in my opinion. hasn't changed too much. She is clearly popular and attractive and nice, but cheating with her friend's boyfriend behind her back. And she also walks between worlds, how pink is an athlete and a stoner. She's popular, but also drinking and smoking and cheating. She's part of the cool girl's clique, which is just short of mean girl's clique, so she has social cachet. She's in the, the, the social prison kind of the same as he is, he can't break up with his girlfriend, who he pretty much overtly doesn't like, even though she's great, by all appearances. Because then Jody can't date her friend's ex, that's just not something that is done in polite society. But one has to wonder how friendly they are. They're, they're part of this approximation of a sorority, this cool girl clique, which is just completely awful. The sorority is just this straight up abusive. Their hazing rituals are maybe worse than the paddling that the boys get simply because it lasts an entire day—a full day of humiliation with girls screaming in your face. Uh, one girl specifically is is comes to mind, and that girl is portrayed magnificently, I might add, by Parker Posey. I mentioned Parker Posey in my episode on the movie *Columbus*, which I think. Also, everyone should watch, and my first exposure to her was in this movie, Dazed and Confused. And I thought that she was just an awful person, because she plays it so well. It's interesting that she had some real-world influences for her character, Darla. In the Huffington Post, I read a quote where she stated that her aunt was hazed in Texas, and it was actually much worse than what they portrayed in the movie, so she's already bringing an excess of energy into this role. This whole ritual was actually something that Linklater stated that he'd seen in junior high. So it, it it's also made more gross by being made more real, by being based in reality. Just like the paddling which happened to Linklater himself, which, in the commentary he points out, was all sanctioned and tolerated. Fucking gross. I've since understood, though, that Parker Posey is not the characters that she plays, and I hope that she's just a, a wonderful person. But she's in the same kind of clicky-click whatever as Jodie and Simone, Simone being Joey Lord and Adams' character. And the idea that is that they also went through the same thing together, and it, it really is a cycle of abuse in the most obvious of ways. A young Ben Affleck, accompanied by a young Cole Hauser and Sasha Jensen, make up the trio of O'Banion, Benny, and Don who are just out to abuse incoming freshmen with decorative paddles. They're sometimes joined by Melvin, played by Jason Smith. And, um, yeah, they just, they they spank young boys. That is what they do, and they are eager to do it. While Don and Benny are football players, and ostensibly in, in some reasonable standing, they remark that O'Banion flunked his senior year just to paddle freshmen again. And O'Banion was a football player from... Uh, casual dialogue, if I recall correctly. I get the vibe that Benny and Don are just assimilated to this bullshit pattern, but that O'Banion, who is, is extra looking forward to hitting young boys in the ass, is really trying to make up for the failures of his own life. I heard an interview with Link later where he talks a bit about the dark lining, and I think that O'Banion is definitely one of those dark linings. To go back to Friday Night Lights... Obenian could be Don Billingsley if his dad, Charles Billingsley, went well past calling him stupid and bad and just hit the ever-loving shit out of his kid and couldn't hold job hold the job down from middle school and up. Don and Benny are are a little more like stooges who think they have agency to greater or lesser extent. And Don is a bit more accepting of, of Pink wanting to torpedo football and just be who he wants to be, which which begs a literary comparison that I won't get into. And he probably has more agency than blind faith when compared to Benny. Benny is sold out completely. I'm going to take a detour here. Because here I think is the best time to get it into my mind, I guess. I don't know. The, the comparison that I didn't want to make, which I'm making because I am just a self-indulgent uh, wiener. Uh, unless I had a 1964 uh, Ferrari Daytona GCB4 cam, that I wouldn't be a self-indulgent wiener, I would be a connoisseur. Um, You know, champagne would fall from the heavens, velvet's ropes would part. Um, Anyway, this applies to to Pink and Benny and Dawn more than it does to O'Banion. The comparison is from Stephen King's 1999 book, Hearts in Atlantis. Not the thrust of the whole titular story, but uh, something very specific that was said. I'm going to paraphrase it because I'm not going to go look through the book to locate it. It's late at night. Anyway, there's a character in there named Stokely Jones. And there's a lot to that that I won't get into, but go ahead and read the book. Because it's likely that zero of this appears in the movie, which I haven't seen. Stokely Jones tells the narrator, Peter, to talk to his friend Skip who became an artist during his time there to get out of sports, as Skip was there to play baseball. Uh, Stokely, in a big moment, lets Peter know, uh, sports changes you. And, and again, that's not a direct quote, but uh, I think what he was pointing out was the, the assimilation, the sublimation of your individuality necessary to succeed in that environment. They do change you, and it's not always for the better. So that's one of the reasons why Pink's whole thing with this pledge that they tell him to sign versus the the peer pressure, it, it hits a chord with me. I wasn't the athlete in question, but I'd i seen it happen, and I'd seen it go both ways. Sometimes they were very successful people who, who, who really knew what they wanted and how to go about getting it. And for other people, they struggled within that system, and, and they didn't make it. Anyway... Back to the show. But Pink is different here in that he doesn't propagate the cycle of violence. When they catch Wiley Wiggins' character Mitch after his baseball game they all let him have it except for Pink. Pink lets him off way easy and even picks him up later to go to a party. He brings him in. Mitch, I, I must mention also, is Jody's younger brother. And that also means still a different attitude in Pink, although he didn't seem super into hitting young boys all that much. Mitch is a kid that's also walking in in two worlds. He's actually a good pitcher, but he's got his small, nerdy little group of friends. Through this invitation from Pink, he gets to experience and be accepted into a different world. We see his change from middle school to high school student on screen, and it's really great in a lot of ways. And yes, I'm, I'm romanticizing a lot of adolescent behavior that maybe isn't the healthiest, but I I can't necessarily say that I didn't do it either. I just looked a lot older. I didn't get accepted by the popular people like that, for sure, not even close. but I did have my own experiences that weren't too dissimilar. I remember one of the first nights that I stayed out till past sunrise and, and watching the sun come up on the beach with friends. I remember driving a girl's car back to back to town so to speak, Uh, I remember that pleasant, warm, lifting-off feeling in your stomach. I didn't understand it when I was younger, but I I totally get it now that it's past me. And and it's never going to happen for me again, but I, I know it to be such a visceral experience, such a powerful experience for someone Mitch's age mitch was in a lot of ways Linklater's later's self-insert it's not too hokey he's not like walking around with a camera or anything but he's definitely the quiet kid that gets an eye-opening experience which is not dissimilar from even lucas's self-insert of kurt in american graffiti but mitch didn't quite have a singular john milner he had a uh, pink who was in many ways his patron and his inn, and he had uh and he had Don, who was his kind of smooth-talking uh, pickup artist, like, uh, mentor. Kind Not pickup artist, mentor, because, like, that's associated with the pickup artist and stuff like that. But, like, somebody that helped him kind of be smooth and talk to women. But in terms of of, of banging gears and just oozing cool, he had Wooderson. And Wooderson is definitely a character. This was Matthew McConaughey's first film. Appearance, and I think it was clear to many people that he was going to be a star. If you can imagine that this performance comes from someone who has basically never been in anything, I think it would be clear to you too. Now, Wooderson isn't much of a hero at all. He is, I think, the face of the movie in many ways, and that's just his charisma alone. Because he's a bit of a sexual predator. I say I say a bit because the age age differential is unclear, but he's he's definitely coming at situations with very sleazy approaches for the most part. And Wooderson is the source of the quote. You know what I love about high school girls? I get older and they stay the same age. And that that's gross. That's that's a gross thing to say. Um You know, but that's also Wooderson. Wooderson Wooderson is a nice guy to Mitch. He's he's a nice guy. He's a chill guy, kind of all around. Nonviolent, about his car in a way that our modern economy likely couldn't nor wouldn't support, but just oozing charisma. It's not it's not a hall pass. It doesn't excuse behaviors, but it does need to be remarked upon. He's an ex-football player as well, turned into a pothead who graduated a few years ago, but still hangs out with high school kids. I mean, he's clearly hasn't found that experience past high school that has motivated to him to, to change or to get up or, or move or, or, or do anything. He's also hanging out with the pothead to end all potheads, Slater, played by Rory Cochran. Slater is definitely a character as well. In my book, Rory Cochran is the pothead actor to end all pothead actors. I think he is, he's, this is probably the best one, the best performance. Slater is, is, is actually one of the characters that actually has some dimension to them without having all that much screen time. He's the cool pothead, but he's a he's a complete wreck uh, trying to talk to girls. He'll probably go on and be a lawyer or something. It, it doesn't matter. This is just one day, one night in the life. There are an actual hot mess of other characters in this movie, and uh, a lot of adjustments had to be made on the fly. Due to some behind-the-scenes drama, but that there's a whole lot to get into there. Um, but we we have a lot to talk about with Richard Linklater alone, so I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to that. He's definitely a recognized name in film, and, and with good reason. I will confess, uh, however, that that sometimes I get Linklater and Cameron Crowe mixed up both live this nostalgic, almost autobiographical, auteur life with this rapper of Americana that I just, I think, find so intriguing due to its mystery. I'll get to Cameron Crowe at some point, but right now we're on Linklater. Confused was Linklater's major motion picture debut, which is positively shocking, Penny. Um, well known for his indie movie slacker which i have coming in the mail in the next couple of days because i've never seen it and i had heard it described as just a, a good movie to have on around just uh, have a have a movie on and, and people are hanging out i think that the four dudes drinking beer podcast genre might have directly come from link himself except that uh The podcast doesn't realize that the movies were heavily scripted and and poured over meticulously at at points by writer, director, and actors. It wasn't Linklater's original intention to to make the movie that he made, but he got the vibe right. He was aiming to do something that was almost a music video of a hang, right? Two shots in the entire movie where one was a guy putting in ZZ Top's 1975 album Fandango, which is pretty good. In an 8-track player of a car and then driving around with his friend talking for the entire length of the album the movie would have been in real time and this was somewhat i guess similar to a live stream today well, It was like big my dinner with andre vibes but actually what i the, everything i know about my dinner with andre I, I know from that one episode of community so not a, not a huge well of knowledge for me to draw upon here link later definitely bucked the traditional idea of movie production. You know he won some acclaim for Boyhood, and has apparently begun a twenty-year project called Merrily We Roll Along, that's based on a musical, which is an adaptation of a play. I'm I'm completely in the dark on Merrily We Roll Along, as my knowledge of the stage is incredibly shallow. But if I'm alive for to see this come out, I will go see it. But he's already flipped movies on his head with Slacker and with Days. He he made movies where people just talk and and he strives for that realism and he, he gets it. It feels good. It feels good to watch. I don't know. It's complicated. Um I guess now's a good time as any to, to, to bring up that I've I've been told that I do certain things constantly, so I might as well make a drinking game out of it. I will, I will caution you, listener, to drink responsibly and legally, if you're dehydrated or exercising while listening to the podcast, that it could be a water drinking game. But I think that the point of making a drinking game out of something is really just to point out that certain events happen a lot, and I don't actually know anyone who plays drinking games in 2022. Much like a dr- traditional internet meme, it is more the conceptualization of and it's accompanied feelings, ideas, and experiences that make this bit work. I say much like, but I actually remember reading about Star Wars drinking games in text files back in the day, so so perhaps the, the idea of a drinking game was the front runner of the meme, and somebody should research that. Uh, as for the game itself, if I mention American Graffiti or Two Lane Blacktop, take a sip. I would say uh, uh, house rule that one to maybe be three per podcast, because it could be a lot more. If I mention the book Hearts in Atlantis, take two sips. If, when mentioning the book Hearts in Atlantis, I mention that I never saw the movie, take another sip. If, when I say that I never saw the movie, I also point out that what I'm talking about is probably not in the movie, take another sip. Hearts in Atlantis is dangerous. If I say I'm going to talk about the soundtrack later on, take a sip. If I talk about the book, and and this rule, just let this rule apply once per day. If I talk about the book that the movie's adapted from, finish your drink. You you can house rule that one out. You don't have to, like, stick to that one. If I compare the titular movie to another movie, then take a sip. And, you know, again, you can house rule that one maybe three per, per long rest, right? Three per long rest. If I make a joke and it seems like I think that it's great, but it means nothing to you, take a sip. And if I add something as I'm editing the podcast, take a sip. If i plug another podcast go and listen to that podcast and if that podcast mentions american graffiti or tulane blacktop then finish your drink again once a day or, or you know what just don't don't please don't drink too much uh, it's bad for you and again this isn't a real drinking game please don't play drinking games this is just a frame uh for me to point these things out so i talked a little bit about this towards the top but i have a lot of feelings for this movie i grew up almost completely differently from each and every one of these characters, yet somehow there is something in this movie that speaks to me in a a very real way. I feel that I was... I feel that I was most like characters that I've previously left out. And that is Tony, Mike, and Cynthia. They were thinking about what their life was and what everything means, and then wondering about what things will be, and they're Clearly smarter than I will ever be, but they are also scripted characters. But that wandering, that that wandering, too. Just trying to find the party and just driving around. That was a whole mood. Looking at their lives and the lives of their classmates from the outside and trying to figure out what they were seeing. For me and my friends, uh, the equivalent was to burn a CD at 2x, so about 45 minutes, 48 minutes. And then get fucking lost somewhere we'd never been. The fact that the home video market for this movie has been so massive, even while it was not a widely advertised nor widely lucrative uh, effort in the box office uh, and the reception that it uh, has to this day, really, really point to there being some universal truth for the American high school experience. Maybe we weren't all super popular quarterbacks in high school, but we all needed to decide how we were going to choose to live our lives. Maybe none of us as freshmen got drunk and partied with the cool seniors, but we all had that experience where we felt like we parted the curtain and saw into our potential futures. It is crafted, but also uh, found as production went along. Link later had casting calls in Austin, New York, and L.A., and apparently that was a dry period for teen movies, so there was plenty of talent. He made each actor a mixtape for their character to inform them to inform their impression of the character versus having a very concrete, like, one-page summary of who they were. And the, the cast during production also had a, a really interesting and high school-like experience. Some of the cast members felt like isolated outcasts once their scenes were over, because the cast had, behind the scenes, grouped up into cliques of party animals who were going out to gun ranges and taking mushrooms on their day off. Link later said that in an interview, he had to turn into a coach and really work to ensure that 24 young actors were showing up on set for their scenes with their heads on right, because they could they could really ruin this movie, and there were a lot of people counting on them to be professional. Linklater also didn't make any money off this movie. He had waived his rights on a lot of the profits to pay for the soundtrack, which in itself was another battle. But the production also had some creative accounting done, and on, on the back end, it possibly still hasn't made money yet. He worked on this movie as a labor of love, though. The script was set up and it had gone through various iterations from his original idea to tell more stories and have more than just the guys driving around busting mailboxes. But even then, with all that planning and foresight, he still had to change things up and find them as production went along. My impression is that the result of this movie completely hides how troubled production was. Cast issues aside, there were big-time studio issues. Uh, Link later said that he always got about 80% of what he had asked for, which honestly wasn't much. There was a lot of doubt from the part of the studio, and that's that's incredibly challenging to work with. Every day was an exercise in attrition, multiple examinations of what could be cut out to still have a movie. Co-producer James Jacks seemed to be a bit of a studio stooge in a lot of ways during this production. And and this opinion of him is coming from his and Linklater's dialogue in the making of featurette. I, I realize that I don't fully grasp the the totality of of the business of movie making, and I, I believe that Linklater has since understood this, and his opinion has changed with regards to that situation, and his opinion on the movie. The movie was originally two hours and forty five minutes, and there are a significant number of deleted scenes in the Criterion Collection release. One might call that uh, overindulgent, but I counter that with the fact that every movie by a writer, director, producer is by its nature extremely self-indulgent, and that doesn't necessarily mean that other people won't like it. James Jacks was backdoor directing the actors and challenging Link Later not only on resources but on authority at many points throughout the production. He claimed that he had the power on set, and uh, that's really such an interesting position to take. There's a part in there where Link later looks over some of the progress reports sent over, and in the span of two weeks, I believe the statement was made by Jax. Uh, the statement said, um, and again, paraphrasing from memory, but something to the effect of, of even if everything went perfectly from that point on, it would still be an underwhelming piece of cinema or something like that. James Jacks has since passed, but in all honesty, he seemed uh, toxic as fuck and overstepped being business savvy and covered it up with a bit of the the whiplash-like idea of being abusive to push creative people. Linklater absolves him somewhat of, of wrongdoing, but the problems did not begin and end with James Jacks. Notably, there's a character in the beginning of the movie played by Sean Andrews who basically disappears from the movie after a certain point. If you arrange the movie by shooting date, I'm very convinced that there's a firm cutoff for his participation. There's no plot reason for that, but the reason in actuality is that him and Jason London had a pretty severe friction behind the scenes. Out goes Sean Andrews's character and uh, in gets slotted mcconaughey's wooderson which uh, as a literal last minute insert works insanely well and again becomes the face of this movie everybody knows all right all right all right i think the further inclusion of wooderson is great and we obviously know how that has worked out for mcconaughey but i wonder what could have or what would have been had that not been the case wooderson can be considered as being fully enthralled by the small-minded thinking of staying in small-town texas Don, again, is sold into the authoritarian establishment of the football team, but his rationale is about trying to make the most of it. Those values are subjective, certainly, but it's really Cynthia, Mike, and Tony who are are thinking past this and probably not having the best time of it. I can relate to that. I can relate to wanting to escape your circumstances so desperately that you're just miserable all the time. They... They, Mike, and Tony, and, and, and Cynthia are not quite there. And and that's probably some of the stuff that Link later ended up cutting to not make this a bleak look at growing up, but instead a movie that's a good hang. The depression isn't there. The anxiety is relatively easily overcome. The alcohol and drugs have zero consequences on this fine summer evening. It's easy to take this movie apart with cynicism. It's easy to fall in love with its charm. I, I clearly chose the latter, And I'm sticking to it, but I have lived enough life at this point to know that it is just two steps away from me. Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me-like experience. And that's just under the surface, honestly. Uh, Watching the deleted scenes, I could say that the movie is both lighter and better for the edits and likely for the cuts that were made during filming. Uh, Some of the, the Fire Walk With Me gets excised, some of the Friday Night Lights gets excised. There's a wonderful quote by Kent Jones in the foreword to the Criterion Collection booklet. He says, The film is made up of a succession of small visions. And I can get behind that. They aren't quite vignettes. They're interconnected. They're, they're woven together in, in such a specific way, even though a lot was cut or found on the day. I know that I've left out characters and plots and themes and all types of things. I haven't even talked about the cars. Really, the, the, the Cheval SS is, is the one. Um... I think uh, Pinkerton, what's Pickman, or whatever, the Pickford, has like a, a, a GTO, hey cool, you know, whatever man, I saw a movie with a GTO as well, it's fine. But this is a fluid movie still, regardless, uh, where, where nothing happens but a lot happens, it's a snapshot of an idyllic life, but it is not the taking off point that was illustrated with a heavy dose of irony that maybe a lot of people missed in American Graffiti. I've seen some fucking garbage takes on Dazed and Confused the past couple days, and I I distinctly believe that it comes from an inability to find the truth in the movie that so many others have. I wasn't born in 76, much less coming of age in 76, but the movie connects to me in a real way. And it is the true successor to Graffiti, as much as Linklater may or may not want it to be. The influence is patently clear, but the execution is his own, and I think that is a deeper experience overall. It doesn't usurp Graffiti's Throne in my heart as my favorite movie, because Graffiti is my favorite movie for even more reasons than just the movie, if that makes sense. But I do think that it is quite possibly the better movie. The counter-argument there is that it had Graffiti to build from, and the failed sequel More American Graffiti to learn from, as well as other less-than-successful attempts at capturing that one night in adolescence like The Hollywood Nights. Link later had a, a, a plan on what to avoid, but he still needed to make something great, and he did. And everybody did. They worked hard, and they, they made something great. I know that it's not for everyone. Maybe this is overhyped or whatever, but I, I do recommend Dazed and Confused. It's worthy of all the praise that it's ever received, and maybe worthy of a, a bit of the criticism that it has received. There are people that hated graffiti, and they'll probably hate Dazed, and will likely hate Can't Hardly Wait, and any other teen hang movie of that ilk. That's fine. That's okay. Whatever. I'm I'm not a movie cop. But if you've ever liked a movie like that, and you haven't seen Dazed, then you should. Thanks for listening. That's right. You thought it was over. But I still hadn't talked about the soundtrack. I need to. This is completely one of those jukebox movies, and I believe that the soundtrack was hugely important to make this movie feel like it does. Get it? I think that the, and and I hate uh, to use this word again, uh, I think that the truth of the matter might be found in this quote from Richard Linklater. He says, Teenagers can't express themselves very well, so music is their voice. Music expresses their emotions. That's why it means so much to them. I wanted to transfer that onto the screen somehow. And that's uh, from a wonderful book called All Right, All Right, All Right The Oral History of Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused by Melissa Mayers. I'll make a confession here. I don't particularly like the 70s as a whole. I think there's a lot of great stuff there. The muscle cars, a bunch of movies, prog rock, computers. Yeah, yeah, it's it's weird. I can name a ton of things I like, but I I hate 70s interior design. I never watched the last season of Mad Men because I hated the look of everything so much. Weirdly, as much as I like funk, I'm not a fan of disco. I'll even go to, like, full Italo disco and, and that tradi- transitional period into the 80s freestyle. But just straight-up disco? I don't know. I just can't do it. I feel like maybe it's the result of, of every time I had to be bored at a wedding when I was a kid. This movie doesn't really have any disco, and it's also very straight and white, so perhaps there may be a correlation to be made. This soundtrack brought me around, though. It brought me back around uh it has some really great songs and i'll also preface this with the fact that after this movie i became quite the zz top fan and when i say the soundtrack i mean the music in the film but there were two albums released on the back of this movie and they were called dazed and confused obviously and even more dazed and confused i could go down the entire list but instead i will call out some of my favorites and at the top the two songs from zz top's hit album fandango were Balinese, which is cool, and Tush, which is an absolute fucking banger. Black Sabbath shows up with the absolute classic that is Paranoid. Ted Nugent, who is a bit of a piece of shit, has a pretty fucking badass song in Stranglehold. Alice Cooper pops off with No More Mr. Nice Guy and School's Out. Fog Hat hits with two massive songs, which are Slow Ride and I Just Want to Make Love to You cherry bomb by the runaways is a killer a fox on the run by sweet and both Le Rider and why can't we be friends by war are complete earworms 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 okay they're complete earworms that should pay rent for a living in my head uh, my favorite 70s musician to cameo on the simpsons uh peter frampton really comes alive with the you know really comes alive with Show Me The Way and Do You Feel Like I Do? Or Do You Feel Like We Do? What the fuck's the name of that song? I wrote Like We Do. I don't know. And those are those are both on even more Days and Confused. Uh, Rock and Roll, Hoochie Coo, by Rick Derringer of Hang On Sloopy fame for his time in the McCoys, is potentially the most this movie of all the songs. And last... But certainly not least, is the song that I, I really found out about watching Initial D. And then I used to listen to on repeat when playing Tokyo, the Tokyo Extreme Racer games. And, and those are stories for another podcast. Um, that is Deep Purple's Highway Star. When I hear that song, I can only think about coming up in the limiter on Top Gear, blasting down an empty interstate. I could potentially do a list of of car songs or, more appropriately, car movie songs, but I'll just say that uh, as this episode of the podcast closes up my coming-of-age nostalgia American Graffiti Trilogy, Highway Star would definitely be on either of those lists. You'll note that I left out Aerosmith's Sweet Emotion. I don't like Aerosmith. I don't like Aerosmith. But music I do like... Stoner rock and sludge and post prog metal and the like really take their roots in the '70s and a lot of them in Black Sabbath very specifically and they take it incredibly seriously and I'm okay with that. I recently listened to a band called Kalel, like Superman, who have a really recent album called Dark Majesty and it's it's kind of great. There's a band who, um, you know, holy shit! Now that I'm looking up. They, they released an album in 2021 that I didn't even fucking know about. This is fantastic. Anyway, uh, a band called Red Desert, who have an album called Damned by Fate from 2012. I used to rock that on repeat as well. Older, no wiser is just a, a wonderful, it's a really wonderful put-it-on-repeat song. Aerosmith was a really great pick, though, as they were still completely a thing in 1992 and 1993. There was a lot of maneuvering to try to get this record off the ground with the label geffen records or some sub print imprint of, of geffen and ultimately they wanted to promote an 80s glam rock inspired band by putting them on the soundtrack and linked later did not allow it which tanked that deal the production had to give up their back end to pay for the vacuum that the soundtrack deal had left to get the music in the movie and that wasn't without its drama either but I'll leave it as, at, a, at a quote from Link later. He says, I used to think that it was a photo finish, but now I'd have to say the music industry is at least 30% more slimy than the film industry. And now I'm done. There's 24 main actors. There's a lot, uh, a lot of scenes. I didn't get to it all. I feel like I, I barely scratched the surface. Uh, again, check out the book Alright, 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 The Oral's Tradition of Richard Linklater's Days and Confused by Melissa Mayers, if you want to know more. It is a 400-page book. It is over 400 pages. It is massive and there is so much to every part of this movie. I didn't even get into the adults of the movie. There's parallels with the movie and the production. There's subtext to be an Earth through analysis. Entirely too much. But this is an excuse. I feel like I'm phoning it in I'm not. There's there's actual uh, depth here. Link later himself admits that he was wondering what the end of this movie was going to be because, relatively speaking, there is no plot. Outside of Pink's football dilemma, that is. High school doesn't have much of a plot either, man. We go to school, or we don't. Or we leave school, we, we stop going to school at some point, and, you know, maybe trying to 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 pick up a plot through... Growing up and, and going to school and your your parents and your friends and your romances and your hobbies and all that stuff. Trying to find your identity and then carve it out and, and make it real. Trying to pick up a plot through all of that is, is maybe a futile gesture. I mean, how did it work out for you? Be nice. I'm out.